This is MIT Technology Review. For several years, a strain of ransomware known as SamSam was used to paralyze computer networks across North America and the UK. From 2015 to 2018, it caused more than $30 million of damage to about 200 organizations. It delayed medical appointments and treatments for patients and prompted the Colorado Department of Transportation to call in the National Guard. Tonight, it's happened again. Hackers are once again targeting CDOT with ransomware. 2,000 employees of the Colorado Department of Transportation have been ordered to shut down their computers. The state was still cleaning up last week's ransomware attack when it was hit again with a new variation this morning. The state says, here's what you need. About $6 million in ransom was paid. And in 2018, the U.S. government indicted two Iranian men for allegedly developing the strain and for carrying out the extortion. Meanwhile, a data recovery firm from a small town back in New York was making ransom payments to SamSam hackers for more than a year, according to a former employee. The company is called Proven Data, and at the time it claimed to help victims regain access to their computers by unlocking their data with the latest technology. As we've helped thousands of clients recover their data from ransomware and protect their business from cyber threats. We leverage our threat intelligence from past security incidents help you make informed decisions about how to restore your data effectively. What they didn't explain is that they were almost always just paying the ransom. A former employee we spoke to told us that the attackers began recommending that victims work with the firm. Proven Data said in a statement on their website that paying the attackers was a last resort option. The CEO told us in an email that it was not always clear to some customers. Our ransomware investigation followed the money. We followed four of the payments through as many as 12 Bitcoin addresses before reaching a wallet connected to the Iranians. Payments to that wallet were later banned by the U.S. Treasury, which cited sanctions against Iran. Proven Data said in an email, Under no circumstances would we have knowingly dealt with a sanctioned person or entity. This episode. What happens when the people you go to for help are in some way funding the problem? This is the extortion economy a five-part series from Tech Review and ProPublica about the money, technology, and people behind the ransomware epidemic. I'm Meg Marco. Part four, the extortion industry. most important thing that you have to keep in mind is that whenever you pay a ransom, you pretty much directly fund the next hit to to the next victim. So you are quite literally paying the bills to help the ransomware threat actors do the very same horrible thing that they did to you to other people. And that's the fundamental problem, that ransomware funds itself. The money you pay is used to fund more attacks. Fabian Wosar is a researcher who helps victims recover their data after a ransomware attack. So he has a good vantage point. He can see where the money goes. In my experience and in my opinion, cyber insurance is like one of the driving forces behind the ever-escalating ransom demands. It may seem counterintuitive, but it can actually be much cheaper to pay the ransom, even if you have backups and are prepared. And if you're an insurance company, it makes sense to recommend the more cost-effective option. 
yeah, I can pay like the 100,000 US dollar ransom, or I can give you 2 million to completely rebuild your entire network and pay you for the loss of revenue because rebuilding the whole thing, it's probably going to take weeks. The attackers need to know two things. Who in your organization can authorize a payment? And once they're in, they want to know how much money your insurance company will pay. The first thing they are doing once they have access to your network is trying to find your cyber insurance policy and any documentation relating to that, just so they know exactly what the limits of that policy are. And the amounts they ask for are specifically set and designed so they are maxing out your cyber insurance policy and get the biggest payout they can possibly get. When the attackers are inside your network, they have access to all the same things you do. Your email, meeting invites, the conference room schedules, and sometimes they show up when you least expect it. In one case, we actually had a case where a ransomware threat actor joined the Zoom call with the breach coach and the insurance company and like all those other parties and yeah, just listened into the entire conversation and the team. And at the very end, pretty much just said, yeah, we now know exactly what your limits are and now please pay us, pay us this, which is, it's, it's like really surreal. And sometimes I almost feel like, like I'm in, in, in some sort of James Bond film, right? There's like all this spying going on and people are trying to infiltrate Zoom calls. And actually has reached the point where we have a policy, especially when doing like a Zoom call or Teams call that everyone has to turn on their webcam at the beginning so we can actually verify that it's the person that we expect it to be or where we create like an entirely new communication infrastructure on places like Signal or Telegram. The role of the insurance industry in the ransomware epidemic has been somewhat overlooked. Our investigation found that the insurance companies often accommodate attackers' demands even when alternatives such as saved backup files may be available. While there are some good reasons to do that, it means that the industry is both fueling and benefiting from ransomware. The cyber insurance market has grown rapidly, and cyber policies have been more profitable than other lines of insurance. And with a ransomware epidemic going on, organizations can't exactly go without insurance. What if they get attacked? One of the pioneers of the industry is Beasley, a specialist insurer based in London. Every Friday night in 2014, 2015, 2016, there seemed to be another huge retail breach that was in the news. Bob Weiss is the company's head of underwriting of tech and cyber insurance. He's been following this for a while. And then the coverage has started to evolve. So there was liability for data breaches. There was those breach response costs that were covered. There was, if there was downtime, there was business interruption loss that was covered, data recovery losses, meaning if your data is gone, what would it take to get back to where you were before through backups? The increased number of attacks created a new industry of companies that help victims get back on their feet in the aftermath of a cyber attack. They're usually paid by the insurance company, and the money is good. And sometimes paying is cheaper than fixing. Ultimately, cyber extortion coverage is a main reason why businesses, organizations across the world are buying cyber insurance. It's not new. It has been around for a while, but we never really saw in the cyber insurance space a lot of cyber extortion coverage getting, getting used, if you will. Their demand, the extortion demands were small. They were locking up you know, single 
computers and nodes, and they were asking for small amounts, and it was really a few dollars here, a few dollars there. So that really was kind of under the radar of the FBI and the Secret Service, and that kind of worked for them. Insurance companies we talked to said the decision to pay the ransom rather than restore from backups is always up to the victim. The fact that cyber insurance is driving some of these risk management improvements is a key component to what we're trying to accomplish. Yes, we want to produce profitable business, but but for cyber insurance, a lot of these organizations would be more, more vulnerable and they would they would not improve their risk profile. He says getting a cyber insurance policy involves a comprehensive security audit. We have a ransomware application where we ask questions specific to the events that we're seeing related to email security, whether you have phishing training within your organization, whether you quarantine emails that come through, whether you have the appropriate rules in place to prevent your people from clicking on bad things. Are you focused on containment? Are your networks segmented? If it all goes wrong, can, and your system is down, if it is encrypted, can you get back up and running from your backups? I think that the cyber insurance industry is actually going to self-regulate, and there's going to be a lot of changes to cyber policies based on the claims that in order to keep your cyber policy, you're going to have to do a lot of very specific things. Bill Siegel is the CEO and co-founder of Coveware. We are a cyber incident response firm with a very narrow focus on assisting large companies through cyber attacks that involve cyber extortion, which is when a threat actor either holds the data hostage by encrypting it or steals data and threatens to leak it unless they are paid a sum of money. There's kind of a moral dilemma here, right? Where you're, you know, you're negotiating, you're trying to get the best outcome for the client, you're trying not to make it worse. How does that scale through like the decision to pay, right? First of all, how how do you decide what is the the right amount, right? Or but also the morality of paying, like how does that calculus take place? How does it work? I think if you're going to be in this industry, you have to be kind of on the right side of the problem. We kind of lovingly use this analogy. There are these old posters from the 90s. I think they're called like demotivational posters. And one of them says, I, I forget what it's about. I think it's about like consulting. And it says, you know, when you can't be part of the solution, there's good money to be made prolonging the problem. And I think that phrase, while funny, is kind of apt for this space. You have to be on the right side of this. And you can't be on the side of just prolonging the problem for the sake of commerce for yourself. You have to be on the side of it of trying to actually solve the problem. And it may seem counterintuitive that it's like, well, you know, paying a ransom has this moral dilemma. The reality is the companies in this situation are dire to the point that if they don't, you know, recover their data, they have risk of going out of business. And this goes for very, very big companies, just like small companies. He says that for many businesses, paying a ransom isn't a question of if, but how. Our perspective is let's make it efficient. Let's make it very cheap. Let's ensure that all of the data is collected. Let's make it transparent. Let's follow a compliance process. So it may sound like a rationalization. At the end of the day, the companies are going to do what they're going to do. And if it's going to happen, we want to make sure it happens the right way. And it eventually leads to what we believe will be a, you know more transparency and finding ways to gradually contract 
the size of the cyber extortion economy. His firm didn't exist before ransomware did. He created it as a direct response to the problem. I asked him how he avoids being part of the extortion economy. Well, it, it's a reasonable point because they, they do try and create relationships and there is precedent for that. You know, they, they do reach out. Like when, like when we're very early on, we had like a live chat feature on our website. We very quickly had to disable it because all of these threat actors were trying to contact us to say, you know, can we send you victims? And we actually had to create a policy where if a victim of ransomware contacted us and said, yeah, the threat actor told me to contact you, we actually turned them away in as much as that was painful. And the victim would be like, well, hey, what did I do wrong? And it's like, well, you did nothing wrong, but that doesn't smell right to us. And we don't want to, to benefit financially because a criminal referred you to us. So we're very sorry, but you have to go find another service provider. Some incident response firms don't feel that way. They will develop relationships and take a cut of the ransom payments. Well, I think it's wildly unethical and dishonest, and it's not a, a secret what, what they're doing. They're just contacting the threat actors behind the company's back and purchasing the decryption tool and then charging some sort of a, an egregious premium, you know, pretending that they can actually decrypt the data. So that... There, there's not a, a, you know, too many ways to, to paint that outside of it being extremely dishonest and unethical. And so meanwhile, ransomware attackers have so much money that they need to launder it. In Bitcoin, right, you can just go to a, a website like Blockchain Explorer, for example, and clearly see all the transactions that are recorded within the blockchain. And you can see who sent how much money to which other wallets. And in many cases, it's even possible to sort of figure out in which countries these wallets are, are located. But not all cryptocurrencies are created equal. There are actually cryptocurrencies out there who also claim to be untraceable, where you can't see all the transactions going on in the blockchain. Currencies like Monero, for example, that both give you certain guarantees, not only about anonymity, meaning you can't really figure out which wallet belongs to which person, but that also give you guarantees about transactions being private, that you can't see which wallet sent or received payments from which other wallets. And the ransomware attackers are trying creative ways to launder cryptocurrencies. For the longest time, in order to really anonymize Bitcoin, you use services like so-called Bitcoin Mixer. Essentially, the idea was if many people transfer Bitcoins to like one address and that address then sends other amounts of Bitcoins to like other addresses and these do the same, eventually you will have a very, very difficult time figuring out, okay, how many Bitcoins or, or whose Bitcoins are these, right? And eventually they just send it off to like a completely different address or maybe even a, a, a number of different addresses with like different amounts and so on. So you can no longer clearly trace the path the money took. And these sort of mixing services for a long time proved to be like a really big issue for uh, tracing. However, even these mixing services become more and more ineffective against 
the most recent analysis techniques. So nowadays what people do is they actually switch blockchains entirely. So they accept Bitcoins and then they trade it to maybe Dogecoin and then they trade it to Monero and then they use Monero somewhere else and then eventually they trade the Monero back into Bitcoin. Um, it's really, it's just like typical money laundering, right? Sometimes they clean the cash in ways you might not even think of, like with Steam. So Steam is like a gaming platform of Valve, right? And there are like multiple games that have very complex economies in there. Counter-Strike, for example, has a huge market where you can trade weapon skins. And these weapon skins can be incredibly expensive. We are talking... There are weapon skins out there, like pixels, essentially, that are worth thousands, if not tens of thousands of US dollars. And it's actually really, really interesting and fascinating how pretty much any sort of game, any sort of online platform that allows some sort of trading and that allows you to somehow cash out whatever the goods were you traded, like NFTs or like weapon skins, for example, are often being used by money launderers to essentially launder money. Next time on The Extortion Economy, how ransomware groups are becoming kind of like restaurants and why that's terrifying. This series is produced by Emma Silicons, Tate Ryan Mosley, and Anthony Green. It's inspired by reporting by Renee Dudley, Jeff Cow, and Daniel Golden from ProPublica. We're edited by Michael Riley, Matt Honan, and Robin Fields. Our mix engineer is Eric Gomez and the theme music by Jacob Gorski. The executive producers of the Extortion Economy podcast are me and Jennifer Strong. I'm Mike Marco. Thanks for listening. <laughs>